0: Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of Inside the Brain Of, where I'll interview a movement specialist to get inside their brain and try to understand how they incorporate neurokinetic therapy into their approach to patient or client management. My name is Eric Nelson. I'm a board-certified sports chiropractor and lead NKT instructor. If you're listening and you're not an NKT provider, hopefully this podcast will give you some insight as to what NKT is and how you can utilize it to help your patients or clients. Now, make sure you check out and like and even feel free to share the Inside Your Brain Facebook page. And also, these podcasts are available on iTunes. So if you do utilize iTunes and enjoy the podcast, make sure you write a positive review. Thank you. Now, each uh, episode, I like to give some advice that I think might help uh, in your studies and learning of NKT because we all deal with the same, similar frustrations, and we've all been there and done that, which is one reason why we encourage you to ask questions on the NKT Scholars page uh, if you are, if you have taken a class, because uh, quite possibly that that question that you ask might be answered within minutes, as <laughs> there's some of us who are constantly on that page uh, looking to help others out. And also, I always... Uh, uh, Put, that, put this out there, is that feel free to reach out to any practitioner uh, that you think it might be able to help you, because we all like to uh, answer those questions and help people the best we can, because most of us uh, enjoy teaching, and we like to help people uh, learn what we have already learned. So please, again, feel free to reach us out. Now, I'm just fresh off of teaching a level one class in New Jersey last weekend, and it was my fourth time through and I just have to say it was an absolute wonderful class. Uh, the The students were amazing, my assistants were amazing, the location was phenomenal. Everything just um, really seemed to uh, to hit perfectly for that class. Uh, so each week after a level one class, each of the instructors usually like to post. Uh, something about some key takeaway points from the weekend. One thing that that jumped out to me, and it it constantly jumps out to me whenever I teach, is that uh, most students get stuck uh, when trying to figure out how to find compensations. So the basic premise of Level 1 is to teach you the tests and the concepts and give you an idea of where to look for compensation soon as you start getting the concepts and start practicing some tests, it seems we get to a overwhelming point, because um, you can't remember all the tests, you can't remember the concepts, like relational compensation, relational inhibition, everything starts running together, and uh, you start to get a little uh, overwhelmed, I see that often, and then when we're practicing and we're doing a test, and we find, let's say, an inhibited muscle, you immediately look up and have a look like a deer in a headlight because you're not sure what to do, which is why I, I developed my slide, uh, the three most common questions uh, people have after taking an NKT class. And one of those questions has to be where to look. And while I was standing up teaching, uh, I remember distinctly uh, there was, I forget what month it was, but we were there, and you know we looked at all the the, the easy places to go, And uh, nothing would turn that muscle back on. You know, and it was a good point. I had already checked like maybe three or four common places. Nothing was there. And uh, this is uh, when it hit me because the person on the table, I wasn't really, I was just doing a demo. I didn't really get a history from them. I didn't really palpate them. And I was just kind of focusing on teaching the test. So that's when I realized And and this was my post, the takeaway for the weekend, is that when you get stuck trying to figure out someone's compensation, what you need to do is listen, look, and feel because it's right there in front of you. And what I mean by that is that you need to make sure you ask questions. Oh, do you have any previous injuries? Have you had any surgeries? and you'd be surprised at how many people come up with answers. In fact, I was relaying the story about I had a patient with a shoulder issue that wasn't resolving and it didn't make any sense. And then finally, he told me after a couple of visits, oh yeah, by the way, I had my kidney removed and the scar is still sensitive. (laughs) Well, sure enough, that scar was related to a shoulder issue within two visits. He no longer had a shoulder issue anymore. So again, it's important that you ask questions and that you listen to the patient because they will tell you what the answer is a majority of the time. Also, you really need to look and watch your patient, and that was something we saw multiple times throughout the weekend. I think on my first example I was teaching how to evaluate the transverse abdominis, and the patient I had on the table immediately extended their neck while they were trying to um, you know, stabilize or compensate during the test. And sure enough, uh, that person's suboccipitals were involved, and that's what was compensating. You know, multiple times during the week when we were testing, we saw people's toes going into extension, uh, and that was giving us an idea of what the issue was. The, the toe extensors ended up compensating for uh, maybe the glute max in one of the cases I was thinking. Uh, In another uh, example, we were doing single-leg stance, and sure enough, we saw the toes grabbing and clawing. So sure enough, flexor digitorum longus was compensating for something. So again, if you listen and you look, your patient will tell you a lot of things. And lastly, that was part of the advice, was to feel. And palpation, which probably should be number one when someone tells you what their complaint is, the palpation will guide you multiple times when I had someone on the table and again I was just demonstrating the test, I wasn't going through a full exam. I was just saying, okay, this is a PSOAS test. Well, they would fail the test and then it would start to look for the compensation pattern. And if I couldn't find it, the next thing I would do, I'd say, okay, well what's your history? You know, is there anything I could see here? And then if not, I would get in and start to palpate. And sure enough, every single time I palpated, There was the answer. I found the facilitated muscle, therapy localized, and there was the compensation right through there. So again, the advice is to listen, look, and feel. It's right there in front of you. Sometimes I'll take a deep breath. I'll stand back. I'll look up at my anatomy poster. I'll look at the patient on the table and just try to figure out what they're telling me. If you look, listen, and feel, you will figure it out. Again, if you have any further questions about this concept or anything else we talk about, feel free to contact me on Facebook uh, or my email address is chiro rehab at Hotmail.com. Now, I started this podcast once again because there's so many incredible People out there that utilize NKT from all different professions from healthcare providers to strength and conditioning coaches uh, you name it there's a ton of people golf pros kettlebell instructors chiropractors physical ther- therapists medical doctors osteopaths uh, it, it's pretty amazing intelligent brilliant group of people uh, that we have and I know personally that I'm curious about how these people incorporate NKT into their practice uh, into their approach, you know, to patient or client management. I've interviewed a bunch of people. Uh, Andrew Riley is a is a, is a great trainer uh, that has three other trainers working with him that are all NKT certified, and what they have going on is pretty amazing. I spoke with the brilliant Thomas Wells way back in episode number one, uh, and he provided some incredible insights. Uh, Maria uh, Maria, Marissa Macias um, she really talked a lot about becoming a massage therapist and how she incorporates uh, uh, NKT into her practice and how she's transitioning from more of a relaxation massage into more of a therapeutic type of thing uh, talked to Perry Nicholson and Kathy Dooley and, 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 and John the Greek and uh, Jamie Francis and um, Michael Hoxson uh, with just so many great people with all different backgrounds, with some incredible messages. And I, I, I plan on continuing this podcast, uh, so if you have anybody that you're interested in, in, in me interviewing, feel free to send me those suggestions, because uh, i got a bunch more lined up, uh, but I'm always open to suggestions. Uh, and in fact, uh, I put out... When I announced who I was speaking to tonight, I, I asked if anybody had questions, and a couple people uh, sent me some incredible questions. So, uh, again, that's uh, probably a, a habit I'll do is when I'll announce who I'm, I'm going to be uh, speaking with, and I'll ask if anybody has any questions they might like to hear. So tonight I'm ready to dive into my interview right now. I'm, I'm excited to speak with a person who whom I recently spent two weekends with taking the anatomy and motion classes in New York City. In fact, I love this story. We actually met just before class at an outdoor food market. Uh, And and, and really, it was was kind of like a scene from a movie. We saw each other from across the way, and even though we never met in person before, we knew each other by sight purely from Facebook. It was a really cool moment that, for me, uh, set the tone for two incredible educational weekends. Uh, So tonight, I'm excited to get inside the brain and learn from a physical therapist who specializes in pelvic health. Tonight, I'd like to welcome Susan McLaughlin to the podcast. Hey, Susan, how's it going?
1: Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. I'm totally excited to be here tonight.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm excited to have you. And, uh, you know, aside from the awesome material we learned at uh, Anatomy in Motion, how cool is it hanging out with all the brilliant NKT practitioners from all over the country?
1: Oh, really, I I feel like... um, with with this group of neurokinetic therapy that that I found my people you know I I found this with another group that I um have studied with and I find it really rare and exciting to be able to have like minds coming and getting all of this knowledge and really being interested in learning so much more. And that's what I find so exciting about this group of NKT is people are really um, – they're wanting to share what they know to get everybody else up to speed. And so that's why I really love your podcast, Eric, because this whole idea of getting into the brain is just it's – a, it's, a, it's a virtual mentor, being able to have virtual mentors, I th- I feel like that's what we have with the NKT community. It's really nice.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, and just so many side conversations you had with people. You know, it was everybody was just really respectful, and you know, really wanted. You know, I remember having a conversation with with uh, Donna Freeman, and she was like, "Hey, as a chiropractor, what do you think about this?" And Uh it's just just nice to to be able to communicate with with other people and, you know, not worry about having to defend yourself or anything like that. (laughs) it's it's, It's a community. It is a fabulous community. I'm grateful for David for developing this incredible technique, and all the people that have stepped up and and really help out a lot, like Jamie and Marissa and and others that are just um, you know selflessly get involved in helping out other students. So it's amazing. So well, let's talk about you a little bit. So you're a physical therapist. Um, how come? Why did you choose to become a physical therapist? Uh,
1: well, actually, I. Um I got my undergraduate in uh Bachelor's of, of Arts in English. So initially, I really felt like I wanted to get into high school and teach English. And when I finished college, I, f- I felt like, oh, man, I'm too young to get in and teach people basically my own age. So I just took some time off working just, honestly, labor jobs. So I landed a job at UPS, loading trucks, and I'm sure you're familiar with all the boxes that are um, stacked up in those uh, brown, brown trucks. That's what I did for work. I was just using my body over and over and over and over and over again, and uh, eventually what happened was I started, you know, my arms started getting numb, and my back was fine, but what happened was I was in a transition, it's really classic, it was in a transition of moving from California to Utah. Um, I was in a car accident. I was in a passenger in the car accident and we got rear ended. I was not wearing my seatbelt. I totally went into hyperflexion, came back up and my back was ruined. So from that point on it was a huge wake up call for me to say I need to be doing something rather than just using my body. So I went through the whole stages of rehab, and um, nothing was nothing was working for me. You know, I tried different avenues and felt like um, for me at the time, surgery was the option. And I had surgery because I had blown a disc, and immediately after surgery I was pain-free. No leg pain anymore, no back pain anymore. and you know, I felt like I was fixed, you know. And the pivotal thing for me was I went through it was probably two years of hell, really. I don't know if you've ever been in pain before, but it sucks. And um, it was a huge turning point for me where I had to really look inside myself and say, "What do I really want to do?" because this manual stuff even though it's fun it's easy it's not going to be very lasting so that's when i went i moved to utah and i started going to university of utah and i was taking courses for um becoming a teacher and i had this course where i was having to plan lesson plans and stuff like that and i was like there is no way i'm going to be doing this for a living like this is this is a nightmare so, I just sat up with a friend of mine and just did some brainstorming, and really just started to figure out what did I want to do and i did I was always fascinated by the body. I was athletic growing up, I did every sport I could. I was from a small town, loved it um, and i I was fascinated by movement. I wanted to understand more, and at the same time i there's a part of me that really likes to educate, and so I felt like. One of the best channels for me to go into would be to go into physical therapy because I would be able to learn and understand the body, and I would then be able to educate with um, patients and clients as they would come in with working with me one-on-one. So once I knew what I wanted, I, you know, I was an English major, so I had to do all of these prerequisites for um, pre-med. Busted that out in three years and then got accepted into the PT program. Um, and at the time, physical therapy program was a master's program. Now it's a doctorate. So I have my master's in physical therapy, got in and um, graduated in 2001. I've never looked back. I've been super stoked to be a PT.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Now, you're you're known so, <clears throat> somewhat in our circles as uh, a pelvic floor specialist. How did you get right. involved or interested in that?
1: Well, um, I started my first six years in practice in a skilled nursing facility. So I was really, it was generally orthopedic, but there was also some neurological rehab. And it got to the point for me where, you know, I was working with a lot of people doing rehab for total joints and, um, broken hips and then just general debility. You know, people having heart attacks and just needing to take extra time to get back. And I felt like, I felt like I was losing my skills and learning, losing my understanding of the body. So at that time, I, I needed a change of pace and I moved into the orthopedic realm and I was able to get a job at a, a big company here in um, in Utah, and I was um, in the general orthopedics, and then I specialized more in the spine rehabilitation. So as a spine rehab specialist, um, at the time, they were um, we were going to be the whole spine team we were going to be moving to a new location. and so we had this building with private rooms. And my director at the time, he just said, hey, Susan, we're really interested in getting some women's health going. Would you be interested in that? And I was like, yeah, that would be so exciting. I had always been, when I was a teaching assistant for anatomy for the university for a few years, like I would just, I was just so just just mind blown by the whole pelvic basin, the layers of muscle. It was always so hard for people to understand. It was fascinating to me, the pelvis more, fac- more fascinating. So it just it wasn't something that I pursued, which is really kind of interesting. I didn't even think about it, but once that, you know, that little idea was um planted in my head, I never looked back.
0: Excellent. And um so what other um what other continuing education classes have you taken?
1: Um, well, I I ended up um, doing my training um, in the pelvic health arena, which is extra courses and um, different trainings. And I so I worked for this company for for a couple couple years, two three years, and then I got to a point where I really just felt like I wanted to be in a place where I I was working more in wellness, I guess, with um, kind of getting out of that whole sickness mode of um, patients coming in and saying, you need to fix me, because I really have this firm belief that we are all our own healers. It's just nice to be able to have a guide. So, it you know, for me, I felt like I wanted to transform how I was practicing. So the way for me to do that was to start my own practice. So I started my own practice a couple years ago, and it's actually a fee-for-service practice, which means that people are coming to see me. They're paying for it. They're paying for their service up front. If they have an insurance company that does out-of-network um Reimbursement. then I provide an invoice and they can get reimbursed for their out-of-network benefits, which is really, really classic because then people who are coming to see me are coming to see me because they want to see me and they want to make some changes. So that being said, that means for me, I ne- really felt like I needed to up my game. I have a niche in the pelvic health area, which is a, which is a really great niche and that has drawn people to my practice word of mouth and i also have a strong passion of really being able to understand the body. So for me um, i've always kind of had this alignment bent, bent or posture bent. So i've done some training with uh Pete Egoscue. I don't know if you're familiar with the Egoscue method. I did some uh some training with Igoscu and i felt like there was more that i just wanted i wanted more understanding. And so the, I did a training called the whole body alignment program and this program was um, created by a biomechanist and so her whole philosophy is really being able to um, she's coming at it from you know more of a Newtonian physics more about gravity so what are the loads placed on the body and a lot of her philosophies just made sense to me it was like oh yeah duh like let's be more objective with how I'm standing and sitting and moving and using my body and I started um, um just doing some online classes at first and started implementing some of this alignment and really being able to change the loads going through my tissues and you know I had I had mentioned that I had back surgery and I was fixed well that lasted for maybe you know, five years and then when I got out and started practicing a physical therapist and in, in the skilled nursing facility, I don't know if you're familiar with what goes on there, but you have to do there are a lot of patients that are dead weight. <laughs> and so you're ending up doing a lot of lifting and transferring and stuff. And so I ended up because I hadn't, you know, I got surgery, I didn't change how I moved, I ended up having back pain again. So here I was with chronic back pain. Again, it was just different. I didn't have the leg pain. And so this continuing education that I started doing online initially, I started just applying some of these principles. And within three months, I got out of chronic pain. You know, I was having ascites function, chronic low back pain, and the dirty little secret of, as a public health PT, I leaked urine. Mm-hmm. And so things that were happening from for me was I I got rid of back pain and I stopped leaking urine because I was applying these principles. So, for me, I was like I need to certify in this. So, I became a restorative exercise specialist. That was a 7-month program um where I was flying out to California for you know, every month for 7 months. And that was a big eye opener for me. That was for me, really being able, really kind of looking at the body a little differently than I did in PT school. It's like, why didn't they teach me this in PT school? So, from there, um, you know, I felt like so I had that when I went off into my own private practice. So I, I felt like I had kind of this niche of that whole body alignment. Um, uh, Katie Bowman is the creator of this and the restorative exercise. Um, Institute and she has quite a following. So I felt like, you know, I would have those two niches. But that wasn't enough. <laughs> like, um, there, I have a, a colleague in the um, whole body alignment program, Galena Denzel. I don't know if you know her. She's awesome. Um, she told me about NKT because I was looking, actually, I was actually looking at taking a training in DNS. Have you done DNS, Eric?
0: I have not. Taking the mind. courses? I'm I'm going to yeah. talk about work class. Yeah.
1: So I, I was I was just toying with DNS and um and then she said, "Well, what about, you know, what about NTT?" And so I started following David on Facebook. And it took me about a year um, I was trying to figure it out. <laughs> to be honest with you, I was trying to figure it out. I'm like, "Huh, like it seems so simple. Like if you I could figure this out. And I wasn't figuring it out. It but yet looking back it's like it's so it's so beautifully simple that, you know, to me David's a, a genius in that respect. It's it, it, it seems so simple and yet there's there's um some complexity in there, you know, when you really start to peel the layers. So anyway, I did the NKT Level 1, NKT Level 2. I'm certified, and I'll be taking uh, Level 3 whenever he's teaching it in California again. So I have that under my belt, and I'm really fascinated by fascia as well. So I was drawn to the MELT method. I don't know. Are you familiar with that, Eric?
0: I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. What what exactly is it?
1: Well, the melt method was created by a woman who um, Sue Hitzman, who is a body worker by trade, and she is kind of a fascia junkie herself, and she really started digging into the research. And what she really started to do was create um, movements that her clients could use outside of work with her. So, she created this whole system that she calls hands off body work and i'm I'm really a person who is big on self care strategies because you can't you can't take your therapist home and and I really do believe that everybody has the ability to heal themselves sometimes we just need another set of eyes you know we need someone else to connect the dots that's my philosophy is to be able to really um start to tune in to what your body is telling you. So I was really interested in her work um, dealing with fascia because our our fascial system is 80% water, right? So being able to hydrate the tissues and keep them mobile is a way to have a way to be able to improve cell health and the nervous system, blood flow, all that. So I took one of her trainings, um, and I really find the philosophy is, is amazing. And then of course I've taken all my, you know, pelvic health trainings and I, I can't get enough of those. And then I also took restorative breathing. I think you took that too, Eric. Yeah?
0: Yeah, I sure restorative did. breathing. Yep, good stuff. Definitely. Still
1: yeah, did. so all everything that I've taken so far, um, as well as the anatomy and motion, these all gel so well together. It's like they were all made for each other. <laughs> Um, because we're, we're really kind of looking at the whole system but different systems within the system to provide input to the body. And so I really find that being able to um, add bits and pieces here and there can just be mind-blowing for for working with clients.
0: Oh, no, definitely. Without a doubt, some of the stuff I'm seeing in these past couple of years has been absolutely amazing. Excellent. Now um when you said you this pelvic health now now forgive my ignorance about physical therapy as I'm a chiropractor we have um uh, postgraduate courses in different things like sports chiropractic there's a postgraduate degree in nutrition neurology radiology orthopedics do you guys have that kind of, is pelvic health like a Board certification type of program, or? right?
1: It is now, which is totally cool, and this just happened probably within the last few years. In, it is a uh, women's certification specialization. Nice. Okay. Or women's women's health. Um, it's still called women's health. Um, however, it is it is pelvic specialization. Nice. Because men and women have Pelvic floors, <laughs> so good, and good pelvis, point. so so it is. It's not specific to women, but they do they do call it a women's health certification specialization.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, um, you know, when I told people that I was going to be interviewing you, a lot of people got really excited. Um, so uh-huh. I asked people to come up with some questions. So um, Margie uh, Verba and Dory Miller each gave me some questions, and I thought I would pass them on to you because I think they're um, very great questions. Now, listeners, just for the listeners, please keep in mind uh, in Level 2, we talk about analyzing and treating the pelvic floor. Uh, Tonight, we're going to just talk about some background and some basic information um, that I think applies to for every situation and that everybody should, should be aware of and, and, and know. So, um, again, these are some incredible questions from Margie and Dory. Um, so, let's see. Um, Margie's first thing was that her, these questions are from the perspective that the pelvic floor is such a player in motor control for uh, so many functions. Uh inter abdominal pressure, um lifting, etc., elimination, procreation, breathing, ISS and, 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 and other core to extremity issues. And what's ISS what's that? I don't know.
1: What's ISS?
0: That's a, that's a good question. I thought maybe you knew that. <laughs> no. We'll have to ask. <laughs> uh <laughs> uh it, but pretty much I guess her point being is the the, pel- the pelvic floor there's it's there's so much depth to it um yet generally the only thing anybody has ever offered is okay here's some kegel exercises <laughs> right so you know that obviously in so many patients and I've told the story before I've had patient that you know, with a pelvic floor issue, and I I mentioned to her, oh, have you been doing your Kegels? And she gave me this violent death look. uh, Like, Uh, I've been doing them for years, and they did nothing. Right. um, You know, and that's so many women, you know, as I've delved into the the pelvic floor uh, um, issues, it's amazing how many women have these issues. And almost everyone says the same thing. These exercises have done absolutely nothing. So right. obviously, obviously, there's more than just lifting your pelvic floor. So right,
1: and 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 what I want to say, and, and just from a personal, because I I gave away my dirty little secret of uh, leaking urine with um, coughing, laughing, you know, jumping, um, and the thing the thing that is the kicker is a pelvic floor. You know, people. I think the general public just thinks that someone's leaking leaking urine their pelvic floor is so loose that they and so loose and so weak that they're just, you know, they're needing to do those Kegels to create contraction but if you think about if you really understood muscles and realized that you can have a muscle that is um, you know, that whole length tension diagram. I don't know if you ever remember that length tension diagram, but it's a bell curve, basically. And we want that sweet spot. We want that Goldilocks position. We want that resting length of the muscle. And the muscle goes into a concentric contraction, which is a shortening. And a muscle can go into an eccentric contraction, which is a lengthening. And if if a muscle does not have the ability to go into the lengthened state to be able to contract, we have a problem. And a lot of times, especially in the fitness industry, and especially in tightly wound, you know, people who are carrying their t- tension internally, these muscles are constantly held in a contracted state. So they're not getting the length. And when you don't have a muscle that is at a resting length, then you don't have any force generation for closure. So the people who have tried kegels to kegels to kegels, you know, there are a lot of different reasons why people can't kegel. One of them is maybe they're already too short. Maybe the muscles are already held in tension. So they're not able to get a contraction. They're not able to get that force generation. And then sometimes there is no awareness of the pelvic area. So being able to try and contract it, what I find for a lot of people is they're doing the exact reverse of what should be happening, which is taking a breath in, holding their breath, and squeezing, which is not even how the pelvic floor functions in the breathing cycle. So there's so much confusion when it comes to the pelvic floor and probably because we don't like to talk about poop and pee and we don't like to talk about sex or farting and so these just aren't even uh topics that are you know they they're not dinner table talk at uh, topics unless you're in a group of nkt people probably in pelvic health physical therapist you know so the the unfortunately i think that well Fortunately, the tide is turning, and I think what we have started to see now in the literature is more of an understanding of what the core is. So there's been some recent research, and I would probably say that in the last five years, our whole understanding of the core is broadened and widened, and we understand it more so we understand the diaphragm we understand the pelvic floor we understand the transversus abdominis muscle and the multifidus and how they're involved in maintaining our dynamic stability so for me it's it is it it, it is it is it's frustrating because old paradigms die kind of slow because we kind of stick around with you know what has always been done so fortunately, we're seeing people with the Internet especially who are able to educate more. There are tons of pelvic health therapists who, have, who are blogging, who are on Twitter, who are on Facebook, and they're really putting out a better word for um, there is life beyond the kegel. <laughs> excellent,
0: excellent. And I did get word that ISS is the Intrinsic Stabilization subsystem.
1: So. Oh, okay. So that would be the diaphragm, the pelvic floor, deep abdominal muscle, and multifidus, then.
0: Exactly. Just as you. Right?
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: So, uh, with that information that you just shared with us, what advice would you give a pregnant woman as far as getting through pregnancy and preparing for delivery?
1: Well, actually, I teach a pregnancy workshop um, quarterly, and one of the. One of the things that I really emphasize is I think, again, there's a misconception that when you're pregnant that you just all hell breaks loose and that's just normal because you're pregnant. Um, You're going to get pelvic pain, you're going to get back pain, and you're going to swell, and all of this is going to happen because you're pregnant. And really what's happening is this load, this baby load that is growing and growing and growing, if the person doesn't know how to manage their loads, if the person doesn't know how to, um, you know, stack their bones basically to be able to have a neutral pelvis and to be able to actually use the muscles rather than the ligaments, then as the as the baby gets larger and the mother starts to get more weight, rather than standing and using muscles for support, what ends up happening is they're standing. A lot of times it's the classic posture is pelvis sways forward, shoulders sway back, and the, and she starts to waddle. So what she's doing, she's putting tons of stress on her ligaments, her, her, her pubic symphysis, really jamming that SI joint, putting tons of compression into the lumbar spine, So no wonder people get sciatica and um, diastasis recti, which is abdominal separation and pubic pain. They have a really hard time walking. So one of the things that I really encourage is get a side view of yourself in the mirror and be objective. Where is your pelvis in relationship to your rib cage? Where is your pelvis in relationship to your ankle bones? Because in in an ideal world, and no one's ideal, but what we want to try and do is manage where our core is. Manage the center of mass. So if that's way out front and the shoulders are back, that core doesn't have that skelet- those skeletal landmarks in a place where they're even going to be able to work effectively. So standing in the mirror and really looking at that vertical line, that plumb line, so to speak. So if you think about drawing a line down through the midpoints, midpoint of the shoulder, midpoint of the hip, midpoint of the knees, and about just in front of the ankle bone, you know, I don't know about you, but I learned that in PT school, but really, now that I'm really looking and being more objective, it's not, you know, you see a lot of people trying to tilt the pelvis to try and get out of that anterior tilt. What I really encourage people to do is Bring the pelvis back. It's not about a tilt. It's just get the pelvis back in line with the ankles and the shoulder. Does that make sense?
0: Well, uh, completely. In fact, as you were describing that, I was thinking of Gary Ward's flow motion model. Um, yeah. He, talk, he talked about like with athletes and different sports. Well, geez, well now we can apply it to pregnancy as well. That's. that's,
1: that's yeah, totally. And you know, I th- what I find beautiful about an- anatomy and motion is. This is something that you do on a conscious level. And what Anatomy in Motion, with the flow motion is trying to do is get the movements to happen to feel and find the center and the body can start to reorganize so much more quickly. So this is really more of a, a standing adjustment. I mean, it's not an adjustment, it's just a tweak. It's a tweak in the standing so the loads are just better dispersed. Because when the pelvis is push forward, what that does, typically it is a tuck in the pelvis. And when we have a tuck in the pelvis, that shortens the muscles of the pelvic floor. And that's not what we want to have happen. And, you know, so the biggest the biggest hindrance to a vaginal delivery is the position of the sacrum relative to the pubic bone, right? So there, there needs to be mobility. There needs to be room for that baby to get into the pelvic inlet and the outlet so space space is another thing so you know a lot of people think that because they have relaxin which is the hormone that loosens the ligaments that that means that it's going to loosen their muscles too and that is not true (laughs) so um, so muscles if, if there's tension in the system What I've heard from so many women is they were pushing, pushing, pushing in their in their second stage of labor, and they were fighting themselves. They were fighting themselves. They were fighting their muscle tension rather than taking some time out in pregnancy, even before pregnancy if you know you're going to be pregnant. Start to breathe. Start to understand the relationship of the diaphragm and the pelvic floor and what is happening in the pushing stage. You know, in an ideal world, our body is birthing the baby. The mother's body is doing all of the work, really, as far as those contractions, and, and that it can birth the baby. The uterus is the strongest muscle in the body. So being able to really start to pay attention um, to some breathing and being able to relax the pelvic floor, relax the psoas muscles. So psoas tension is... You know, the psoas muscle, um, there's one on each side, it's attaching to the, every single vertebra of the lumbar spine, the discs, and it's tra- traversing, it's, it's, it's moving from the back to the front, and it's passing through that pelvic rim. So if there's tension, if there is not yield in that muscle, it's gonna be hard for the baby to move. So then we can get a, a um, poor positioning of the fetus for delivery, which causes complications and cesarean deliveries and whatnot. So we, we want to have more space for the baby to move. So really start to do some breathing, releasing the solace, and probably most important is to walk. Walk, walk, walk. Ideally walking five miles a day. That doesn't mean walking all at once. But being able to get it in throughout the day. And if someone isn't, you know, walking to start, if they weren't walking before they were pregnant, you know, you want to start gradually. So start with a mile and then increase it every, you know, couple weeks by half a mile until someone is able to walk five miles. I mean, everybody, we, 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 we all should be working, what, those 10,000 steps? <laughs> I don't know. Everyone has pedometers these days, it seems like.
0: Yeah, that's what they tell us, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So those would be my big ones. Walk, really pay attention to how you're standing, how you're sitting, slouching on the couch, tilting that pelvis under, slouching is really not making room for baby. So really paying attention. And and that, that tilt in the pelvis, that starts to, when we're sitting, starts to, you know, put some load onto the um sacroiliac joints and so one of the biggest complaints that I get from people is that transition from sitting to standing. They can't walk those first few steps. You see this in SI dysfunction SI pain. It's like well that's because your ligaments are already loose and you're loading them and they have tons of load and then you get up to stand. Where's the stability there when everything's all stretched out? If the ligaments are you know expanded. So really just looking at the body mechanics sometimes it's so simple so simple that it's just easy. It's easy to make the shift, and it's really it's just bringing in some consciousness to everyday movements. And I think that's the key for a lot of things: is being able to bring the consciousness into everyday. So the brain has something to do. We're not having to go on automatic. That's when the body right. gets destroyed, usually, right?
0: Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. And so you teach a quarterly class to preg- for pregnant women on preparing them for, for birth? That's, that's
1: I cool. do. It's awesome, yeah. So I have some really good support from local midwives. I really marketed a lot of the midwives and doulas and, and OBGYNs, um, but, but some of my market has been the doulas and the birth educators and the midwives because typically the people who are going to see them have more they're wanting more of a natural birth and they're also a lot of times they are paying cash for their services and so they're really more mindful of of their health and so it kind of draws in a different crowd and those people are super fun to work with cuz they're really they're conscious they're really making some some good choices and they're 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 wanting to really maximize the pregnancy and take some time out. Not everybody, but I would say that's kind of um, what a lot of people, that that a lot of the people that I get. And then also I teach a a postpartum workshop, and one of these days I'm going to get these online because I really, whenever I put it out there on Facebook, people say, "Hey, I don't live here. Can you put it online?" So that's something that I'd really like to be able to do is provide some. Uh, I don't know, video I guess, v- video or webinar. I'm not sure how well, I want to my, do it yet.
0: Uh, yeah, great idea. And in my head, I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm like, geez, if we put together this NKT symposium, you definitely need to do a uh, uh, pelvic floor women's health issue type of. Ooh, that
1: would be fun.
0: Excellent. Wait, is fun. that
1: happening? When is that happening?
0: I, last I heard, it was. I asked David recently, and he said he's working on it. So. Oh, cool. Hopefully. Hopefully we will come up next summer, so I'll I'll keep uh, pushing him. And, yeah, I'm definitely going to bring up some ideas I have, so you're definitely one of them without a doubt. But, all right, well, let's uh, move on here. Um, Another question is, you know, um, why are episiotomies so common and what could be done to prevent them and what could be done to heal from them? Because, you know, as I've gotten into the pelvic floor arena, as I've mentioned multiple times during the podcast, it's amazing how many women have had episiotomies. It's,
1: right. Right. Well, initially, you know, it, I think in the, you know, 20s and 40s, 1920s and 40s, what was happening was people were, uh, the doctors were trying to prevent a tear, you know, the really bad tears that go into the anus. Um, so what they thought they were doing was helping women by giving them a cut so they wouldn't tear, and um, what they found was even more complications down the road. So now um, there's been there's been a change in um, regulation, and so they you're not seeing as many now. I would say it used to be anywhere from eighty percent people would. Get an episiotomy, and now it's down to about twenty, twenty-five. Oh, wow. And if you're working with a midwife, uh, it's almost none. You, you will very rarely see any any episiotomy. So, I, what they're what they're seeing now is that if there is going to be tearing, it's better to have a tear than go into episiotomy. So, I think that trend is changing. So, you know, you and I are probably seeing people in the age where they do have they they were practicing that it's probably just been within i would say like the early 2000s that things have really started to shift all
0: right good to know excellent 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 all right and um well um another question was why is uterine prolapse so common and what can be done to prevent that
1: mm well, I think, I think there, there are a lot, of, a lot of things going on with prolapse, and I think people, you know, if they're looking at um, people who are most likely to prolapse are women who have had children. And kind of what I was bringing up before is there are a lot of um, people who are pushing against their own muscle tension, And so they're pushing their organs right out of themselves, right? I mean, there's only so much load that the ligaments can take before there's some breakdown. So honestly, what it, to me, in my mind, what it really comes down to, it's a pressure management problem. So if you think about all of the ways that we increase internal pressure and plunging our pelvic floor, and plunging our organs out the vagina. It's horrible to say that, but um, we have cultural habits, and one of them is sucking in the stomach to look thin, tightening up the abs to have rock-hard abs. If you imagine a balloon and you put pressure around like you are tightening up the abs, you would see that you would have pressure going down and you would have pressure going up. So that is going to affect the ability for the diaphragm and the pelvic floor to work effectively. If someone's, you know, we see a lot of facilitated diaphragms in um, in NKT in, when we're working with people. So people are using their diaphragm for stability. It doesn't allow that intrinsic core to work. So when that is hung up, like if you go to a balloon and you hang up the top Where do you see the pressure? You see it below. You see it in the abdomen. You see it down in the pelvic floor. So there are people with prolapses where, you know, that constant daily grind of pressure down. So many people hold their breath. So many people are holding their breath. So all of those things are leading up to that day of pregnancy where the person is fighting their own tension on top of daily practices that are holding and holding and holding. Constipation. So when, you, when you're holding your gut in, it is just holding everything up. So a lot of people who have constipation problems, they're so tight in their abdominal muscles that they're not even able to let go. Or they're so wound up neurologically that their autonomic nervous system is not going into parasympathetic rest-digest. So they're holding in their poop and people are pushing out trying to poop and it's just not happening. Again, they're fighting against themselves. So that I would say that is probably the biggest. And unfortunately about 50% of, of the population have some type of prolapse. That's not very good.
0: No, not at all.
1: No. So to prevention would be start to breathe again. Really see some of the habits. And Honestly, I will men and women suck in their gut or hold their abs because there was that whole fitness phase where we needed to hold those abs in to protect the back. Well, that's long gone. we We know now how the intrinsic core is working with each other. We know that we need this dynamic we need fluidity in order to have this dynamic stability. And so I think people who are still teaching you know, hold in your gut haven't been reading the literature (laughs) you know Uh so i think that's part of it and and most people don't realize they're sucking in and holding it is so ingrained and i even uh i i treated a uh, ob-gyn for SI dysfunction, and uh we went over breathing one day and she said i don't do that i said okay just start checking in you know you can breathe here during the day your breathing is awesome Start checking in in the day. Just do some self-checks. The next time I saw her, she's like, oh, my gosh, Susan, like, you, know, you know what? I totally hold my breath. I had no idea I did that. I totally hold in. I'm totally bracing and holding all the time. She's like, wow, that is so amazing. So it's like we have these unconscious habits that, that are uh, affecting our tissue, increasing our loads. Bringing bring more awareness into our everyday, I think, is one of the key things that I like to promote. Are you still there?
0: Excellent. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, excellent. Well, I'd also think too with holding the breath and stuff. Uh, still, I'm seeing so many more women lifting weights as well, especially yeah, yep, CrossFit and stuff. I mean, it's 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 kind of amazing, actually how many, like, as you mentioned, women that have had kids with probably already an issue, and now they're lifting heavy weights. So it's like a recipe for disaster, in
1: my opinion. Yes, it could, yes because on top of lifting heavy weights, what they're doing is they're potentially, you know, really, really holding their, their breath, which... Which I know from a training modality that 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 is taught, but that shouldn't really be carried. That shouldn't be carried over in everyday life. And that's what people tend to do: is they they brace and hold and lift rather than moving, doing their movements um, to pair with what the pelvic floor is doing in that phase of the breathing cycle. So one thing that I encourage people to do is exhale on effort when the pelvic floor is in the phase of concentric rather than the eccentric. So on inhale, the diaphragm contracts. That increases intra-abdominal pressure. So we need to have the uh, transversus abdominis and the pelvic floor to lengthen, to go eccentric, right? So that's that lengthening in order to get a good contraction. So being able to pair movement in the phase of respiration is a really nice way to start retraining for people. And and also to be able to feel it. Like if you really can start tuning in to your breathing practice, you can feel that the pelvic floor on inhale is going into descent. It's not pushing. It's just going into descent. It's lengthening. And then on the exhale, it is coming back up into a concentric contraction. Pairing your motion with that is like one of the one of the key strategies for getting the pelvic floor back online in a functional movement program, rather than a Kegel.
0: Definitely, definitely. Now, speaking of the Kegel, as we've been talking about, uh, is it ever an appropriate exercise?
1: You know, it it, kind of depends on uh, the person's treatment philosophy. So there are a lot of people who work a muscle in isolation. You see lots of bicep curls in the gym. You see lots of hamstring curls in the gym. Does it have a place? And I think it depends on your treatment philosophy. So does it have a place for you in your practice? If it does, it's kind of nice to be able to know that you have a body map a cortical body map that is representing the pelvic floor. So, can you contract it? You know, a lot of times the pelvic floor is not going to get contraction just because it's held in tension, but also it's not going to get a con- good contraction because there is no body map for it to happen, and the you know the person doesn't have, hasn't had. Good respiration, and so the pelvic floor just really doesn't know how to how to act in a group, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I, certainly I do feel like a Kegel has a place. I don't train people to do tons of Kegel contractions. I've been there, done that, and I feel like it definitely has a place. And I do I do encourage after someone only after someone is able to get the pelvic floor back online in respiration that's when I tie it back in. When they have more awareness of it is when I bring it into the game. And I usually have them do it like an extra contraction when they're um, doing something else, when they're doing a movement pattern so they can start to feel it. But typically I don't, but I do see a place for it. And there are tons of pelvic health therapists who would totally go against me on that, who really spend most of their time doing isolated Kegels.
0: Excellent, because, again, that is the general thing when someone has a pelvic floor issue is up oh, the right. That's what you have to do. So, um, you know, in NKT, we often find a facilitated or an overactive pelvic floor, and yet uh-huh. when we're talking to our patients, again, the first thing they think is, oh, well, my pelvic floor isn't working right, and that's why I have it. So, again, can you just kind of explain uh, some symptoms of a facilitated pelvic floor? and and,
1: and, and well, I think that it I think um you're going to see different different s- symptoms with a facilitated public floor because of facilitation typically, you know, when you're when you're looking at any other muscle, it's just like any other muscle. Um it's just that we can't see it. Um, and i have an advantage being trained as a pelvic health physical therapist to do intravaginal and intrarectal work so i can feel what the pelvic floor is doing so i actually have that palpation that i can assess so that that, that palpation just like you were saying feeling is really important is that muscle hypertonic so that hypertonic muscle is not going to be working effectively. So whether that is creating more of an upregulation, or maybe that's creating urinary urgency, I don't know. I I, I don't know. It's hard. It's kind of hard to say based on um, inhibited or facilitated, because either way, the signal just isn't getting there. I don't know. Am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, typically, no. what you would find in a facilitated muscle is some hypertonicity, right? But you can also see it in inhibited muscle, too. You know, and I think Thomas Wells is kind of the guru of palpation in my mind, and he, I think, in his conversation with you, is able to have a distinction between a hypertonic facilitated and a hypertonic <laughs> inhibited. I don't know. I, I don't really I know. I, I, I do know that there are some areas within the pelvic floor that are really ramped up. Um, So there are certain areas for people, but also intravaginally um, you have access to, the and intrarectally, the obturator internus, which can be, especially in hip compression issues, um, a facilitated obturator internus because that's kind of that rotator cuff of the pelvis, right? So it's really exciting to be able to... um, Feel that and be able to test that from an NKT perspective and go, ah, that's so cool, (laughs) and to be able to do the release. Now, I have advantage of being able to do uh, pelvic floor release through um, strain, counter strain, myofascial release, uh, doing like more of a kind of a, a stroke kind of position. So there are a lot of different techniques, trigger point release, that can be done just like any other muscle. So, um, the, and, and there's also what I give to my clients a lot is a good solid breathing practice where I'm having them focus on relaxing their pelvic floor on the inhale. So that would be some home play that I would give them in between sessions to get that pelvic floor back online.
0: Huh. Yeah, so you, you briefly mentioned... Um, during respiration, what was going on? But can you can you go into a little bit more detail? Just kind of review for us uh, exactly. Yeah.
1: So um, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor oppose each other. They're domes, and as the diaphragm contracts on um, inhale, the um, the contraction is allowing oxygen into the lungs, kind of like a vacuum, right? So what that does is that actually increases pressure into the abdomen and pelvis. So the pelvic floor and the transversus abdominis will yield. So they're going into a length and contraction on the inhale. And on the exhale, it's just the reverse diaphragm, goes back into its relaxed state, pelvic floor and deep abdominal go into more of the contract to the resting, and then it just goes all over again. So it's a nice fluid, I have a colleague, Julie Weeb, who likes to use the analogy of a piston, so if you're a visual person and you can just see a piston, I think that's a really cool analogy. People could kind of see that so you can kind of get an idea of um what the muscles are doing in the breath cycle
0: awesome, cool, very cool. um now, one last uh, question is um we're, you know we talked about females and all this stuff and as you mentioned earlier uh, a lot of men have pelvic floor issues too. Yeah. Uh, in your yeah. in your world are you starting to is there you know is there starting to become more papers published on this or more attention specific classes for men? I mean um you know how is this how are you seeing this?
1: Well, you know, it's really interesting um with my private practice is I, with the male clients that I see, they have sought me out and they have found me on the internet because they're doing a search, and typically what you hear from people is they've jumped from urologists to you know just their general orthopedist and they're they don't have answers, and it I, it it kind of blows me away because to me, you know there are certain signs that are saying this is a pelvic floor problem, you know? And it, and it's not just a pelvic floor problem. It's how the whole body is working together and the pelvic floor of the pelvis and then the nerve to the pelvic floor, the, pu- the pudendal nerve, um, can start creating some changes in the, you know, the bladder. You can have bladder changes. So... Um, I think it seems to me but see I'm in the I'm in this realm so I'm kind of seeing things that are going on it seems like there is more um, more people talking about it there's definitely um, people who blog put their stuff out there's a great book called Teach me to sit still and it's this guy's chronicle he's a writer and it's it, he 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 chronicles his whole experience what, with what the urologist thought was chronic prostatitis, and chronic prostatitis kind of has become a junk term, and they treat it with um, antibiotics, and and um, you know really down the road they're not they're not no changes are, are happening <laughs> with the antibiotics, so they're like huh it must be a pelvic four issue. Hopefully they get to that. And sometimes people just get to the point where they've done some Google searching and they go, oh, okay, so it's some tension. So this guy, he ended up figuring out, he read the book Headache in the Pelvis. So Headache in the Pelvis is a great book by Dr. Weiss. He went through this whole experience himself as well, and he got himself out of the pelvic pain i believe that he was also having some urinary urgency urinary uh retention as well and so he has a whole program in stanford and um he's he's very hands on um do does a lot of trigger point release and you know stretches and and education and and all that kind of stuff so it is out there and you know for me i think People freak out thinking about this rectal exam. You know, there's so many jokes about the rectal exam. But I have to tell you, as a physical therapist, we are trained how to assess the muscles internally. And it's not, you don't go in, it's not like a hot poker. You're not going in and jabbing around. I mean, we know what we're doing. And hands down, almost every single male that I work with after the assessment, he's like, oh, my gosh, that wasn't even painful. That wasn't even as bad as it was with my doctor, or I thought this was going to be horrible, you know. So it's like I think there are so many misconceptions about um, internal work, and it really can be scary for people because what they're experiences is so much pain that, getting in and someone poking around, like that's the last thing on earth they want to do. But working with someone who is trained and skilled in assessing the muscles of the pelvic floor, it's a very gentle procedure. And we're really assessing the coordination, the timing, the tone, the the fascia, the pudendal nerve. I mean, we're able to assess everything. So honestly, if... If anyone listening knows somebody has pelvic pain, pain with intercourse, difficulty urinating, um, leaking urine, or urinary urgency frequency, any, any like incontinence of any kind, fecal or urinary, seek out somebody in your network that you know who's a pelvic pelvic therapist, whether they're a physical therapist or a nurse, there are a lot of um, people who do structural integration work, manual massage work, who can externally, if you don't want to go internal, can externally get up into the perineum. There are a lot of ways to work the pelvic floor. And as you know, Eric, you've done some of the restorative breathing. Once you can balance the, autonomics, the autonomic nervous system and get some consistency and safety in the body, that's when the pelvic floor starts to heal. So it doesn't need to be all painful work. It can be really nice restoring autonomic balance, getting in and be able to learn how to breathe. And I would say that's my key for working with people is bringing in awareness to their own system so that they can find find their rest digest, you know, their calm collect.
0: Definitely. Awesome. Well, that was some some awesome... Information you provided us tonight, and I have learned a ton, and I'm sure everybody out there is going to learn a ton. So, um, any as we're closing up here, uh, any references or websites or books, other books that you would recommend? Um, for oh, you know
1: what? What what I might do, Eric, because I was just thinking of that. Um, I can just compile a list and put it on your your um, podcast page. Okay. Um, with links, I think that's easier than me just saying them because it's nice to just right. be able to go to certain links and then kind of follow the paper trail or the internet trail you know so would that be okay if i do that
0: that sounds wonderful definitely definitely i'll put it out okay awesome time. yeah well thanks
1: for having me on tonight i know i've kind of just been babbling and going
0: oh it's just, just running my
1: mouth horrible. this whole time
0: uh, it's wonderful. I, I loved it. It was great. I could keep going. I looked at the time. I was like, "Whoa, where did where did that go? That's crazy."
1: Oh my! <laughs>
0: very, yeah. Very enlightening. Awesome stuff. I I learned a ton. And again, I mean, these were great questions that Margie and Dory came up with, and uh, I'm very excited to share our conversation with everybody out there because I know. So many people have these questions about the pelvic floor, and you know, as I I've posted multiple times on the advanced page, um, it's amazing how many people have these issues, and you know, we right. ended with talking about men, and I you know I had a male patient today, and that was that was the primary issue, and it was um it was right. pretty crazy, it was uh, involved with a bunch of different aspects, and I see one thing I see I've noticed with the men that I'm finding it with is. Maybe men in their fifties uh, that are lifting heavy weights, you know, trying to keep up with the younger guys, and um, mm-hmm. boom, it really it really brings um, out these issues. So, I, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's it's such an important thing that everybody is aware of. And um, again, thank you so much for uh, for joining me tonight. And um, uh, hopefully, I don't know when I'm going to see you again, but hopefully uh, at some point, maybe uh, AIM Level Three. I, I don't know, or maybe yeah, I'm right. Maybe next summer, hopefully, we'll have a symposium somewhere. We're looking at San great. Diego, so maybe we'll, we'll, we'll connect uh, out there. Uh, but, again, thank you so much for uh, joining me here on Episode, episode 14. Uh, upcoming ec- episodes, I'm very excited. I've got some great guests lined up, uh, two upcoming ones. Uh, Dr. Michael Hartle, who is a uh, chiropractor and a strong first. Uh, he's like a master strong first instructor uh, with the kettlebells there. Uh, he also plays Tackle football. I saw pictures of him playing on his Facebook page, so I'm interested to find out more about that. Um, Christopher Warden, who's an incredible therapist, um, he's just a you know inspirational guy, and, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him. He's going to be in the United States in a couple of weeks, and we've arranged to uh, chat, so that'll be working. Uh, as far as my teaching, uh, I will be teaching a Level 2 class in New Jersey in August. Very excited. It'll be in South Jersey, so I'll actually be able to sleep at my house. Very nice, um, because the hotel I just slept in last weekend was one of the shadiest places I've ever um, stayed in, and I apologize to uh, my physical therapist uh, colleague uh, who I told her about the hotel at the last minute, and she was scared out of her mind, so I apologize to you, Amanda, Sorry about that. I will be teaching a Level 1 NKT class in September in Detroit. My good friend Sean Kitzman is hosting that. In October, I will be in Arizona and as well as Atlanta. I'm looking in November, hopefully, to set up um, another Level 1 up at New York Chiropractic College in that area, and then possibly another one in New Jersey in December. As always, your feedback is appreciated, so feel free to contact me on Facebook. Uh, send me an email at chirorehab.com, at com. Um, also, please be sure to like the Inside the Brain Facebook page. I'm almost at 400 likes. I want to get that up to 1,000. So come on and help me out here. Share this with all your friends. Get them excited about NKT, and hopefully they'll be interested in taking some classes. So again, thanks for joining me, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.